You know, a little boy at Christmas time, he was helping his mom unpack the decorations. Well, as he was carefully unwrapping the nativity set, he found the wise men, then the shepherds, then Mary and Joseph. Finally, he came to the babe in the manger. The little guy shouted, Mom, here's the baby Jesus in his car seat. You know, there will always be people like this little boy who want to modernize the gospel. And yet Paul's point in Romans chapter 4 is that the gospel needs no updating. The gospel is timeless. It's immutable or unchangeable. In fact, the gospel hasn't changed in 4,000 years. This means the means by which a man or a woman becomes right with God hasn't changed. The means by which you and I are declared righteous, the means by which we become fit for God and fit for the presence of God in heaven is the same today as it was 4,000 years ago in the days of Abraham. You see, a person pleases God not by obeying rules or observing rituals, not by trying, but by trusting, by faith. This is what Paul begins to tell us in chapter 4. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, what set Abraham apart was not his moral superiority or even his diligent service, his good works. No, if he could have been pleasing to God through good works, then he could brag about himself. But Paul quotes Scripture. He says, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now here Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham was respected by men. He was loved by God because of his faith, not his works. Abraham was probably the most revered figure in all of Judaism. In fact, the rabbis even exaggerated his virtue. The Jewish book of Jubilees claims Abraham was perfect in all his deeds. The Jews believed that God had accepted Abraham based on his good works, but Paul knew better. He knew that even a man like Abraham needed God's grace. And so Paul does a little scriptural digging to prove his point. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, and he flags the very moment that Abraham was declared righteous by God. Now, you might assume that that moment would have been when Abraham uprooted his family and moved them at God's prompting all the way from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. That was a mighty step. Or you might assume that God declared him righteous when he stood on top of Mount Moriah and lifted up his knife and was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac there on the altar. But neither case was what prompted God to declare this man righteous. When was it? When did it happen? Well, Paul takes us back to Genesis chapter 15. Not exactly a high point in the life of Abraham. As a matter of fact, Abraham is pouting. He's complaining and he's crying over the lack of an heir. He's afraid that without his son, he'll die and all his wealth will be left to his servants. And yet God speaks to Abraham. He says, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. 
Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Notice this, at Abraham's greatest point of deficiency, God shows him his sufficiency, that God is able. And God blows him away with a promise. Abraham is not only going to have a son, he's going to father a nation. And when Abraham believed, as the scripture says, Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. It was faith that made Abraham right with God. And you know what makes you right with God? The very same faith. It's faith. It's not of works. This man Abraham gained God's approval. He received God's blessing. Not on the heels of some great act on his own part, but it was on the heels of a great promise from God's heart. And all Abraham did was believe. The father of Israel became pleasing to God, not because of some feet, but because of his faith. And that leads us to verse 4. Paul says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You know, most Americans assume that if I serve some, and if I give a little, if I try hard enough, if I be good enough, I'm going to be okay. God's going to give me the thumbs up. But you see, this isn't grace. This is wages. Salvation on these terms isn't a free gift. This is working up your own religious resume, hoping that it's going to get you to heaven. Understand, if you think that because of your good works, you're going to get to heaven, you're making God your debtor. God is giving you salvation not because of his grace, but because of your grit. Hey, if Abraham could have been good enough, pure enough, sure enough, endure enough, then God would have been obligated to Abraham. And the point is, is that God owes no man anything. God is no man's debtor. God is never forced to give to us. He gives to us freely. He always gives by grace through faith. And this is why all God's blessings come to us by grace through faith. Notice verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. This is how it works for all of us. It's faith in what Jesus has done and will do that's counted as righteousness, not our endurance or our elbow grease. This means that in heaven there will be no hallelujahs. Only hallelujahs. You know, if we could get there through our own good works, then we would have reason to boast. But when we get to heaven, we'll see that all the glory belongs to God. It was His amazing grace. That's how we got there. That's how we were declared righteous. That's why we were blessed. Well, he shifts from Abraham now to David. He says, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Here he moves on to another Hebrew hero. He goes from Abraham to David, and he quotes now Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It's interesting, Psalm 32 was written on the heels of David's big downfall. You remember what happened? His one night stand with that bathing Bathsheba, it resulted in a lifetime of pain and heartache. You remember what followed? There was adultery, then deceit, then murder, then the ugly cover-up. David was an unrighteous man. He had nothing to present to God. All he could do was cry out for God's mercy. And yet God forgave David. He chose not to impute or credit. That's an accounting term, impute. It means to credit the ledger. God chose not to impute or credit sin to David's account. Rather, God hit the clear button on his calculator. He just cleared it off. Presto, the record and its reminder of David's sin vanished. God cleared it off the memory. And aren't you glad this is what God does for anyone who relies on the grace of Jesus? He just hits the clear button on all our sin. It all vanishes. He forgives us and he forgets it. Paul asks, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now remember, the Jews, they believed that circumcision was a prerequisite for God's acceptance and His righteousness. Thus, the uncircumcised could never be saved. The Gentiles, that is, could never be saved. And you know, sadly, there are folks today who have their own set of prerequisites. They might agree that faith will get you to heaven. But if you really want to earn God's approval, if you really want to know His blessing on earth, then you need more than faith. You need to speak with tongues, or you need to witness, or you need to take communion every week, or you need to dress appropriately, or you need to listen to a certain type of music, or educate your kids in a certain way, or maybe use a particular translation of the Bible. And you know, the list is endless. Problem is, if you don't meet their specific criteria, then you're considered a second-class Christian. Paul contends that it has nothing to do with ritual or rules or rites. Nothing can add to a person's standing with God because that standing with God is earned by grace through faith. If it was works, maybe you could add to it, but it's not works. It's all about faith from beginning to end. We obtain and we maintain God's approval by grace through faith. Are you trying to earn God's favor? Or are you just trusting that you're favorable to God because of the work of Jesus Christ? You know, faith alone was the battle cry for the Protestant Reformation. You know, Roman Catholicism has no problem with faith or with the value of the blood of Christ, or with Christ as our mediator, or with biblical authority. The squabble between Protestants and Catholics is over this word alone. You see, rather than faith alone, the Catholic Church has added good works. Faith alone is not enough. You have to also, you know, prescribe to this rule and do this and do that. Rather than the blood of Christ alone... They've added the sacraments. 
Rather than the priesthood of Jesus alone, they've added the priesthood of man, man, human priests. Rather than the authority of Scripture alone, they've added church tradition. The problem is with that word alone. But understand Paul and the reformers were crystal clear. We are approved by God. We are saved by grace through faith and faith alone. He says, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. You know, the Hebrews said that you had to be circumcised to be right before God. But when did God actually pronounce Abraham righteous? Was it after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? Check the chronology. Abraham believes and is declared right before God in Genesis 15 verse 6. Circumcision isn't even instituted until chapter 17 verse 10. A full 14 years later. That means that circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's righteousness. That when God declared him righteous, it didn't even exist. There was no such thing. And likewise, baptism or communion or church attendance or any other good work you might try to add to your faith has nothing to do with your right standing with God. Yes, these things might help us grow in Christ, but understand our relationship is based totally on grace through faith. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. That's what circumcision is. It's a sign. A seal of the righteousness. By the way, that's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. doesn't make you more right with God. But it's a sign that you're saved and sealed in a son of God. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Again, circumcision was a sign, like baptism or communion today. It's an outward mark of an inward faith. You see, a sign doesn't confer, confer righteousness upon those who believe. It merely confirms the righteousness that comes by faith. The uncircumcised Gentiles, they didn't possess the sign, but they still had the substance. They still had faith, and that's what made them right with God. Abraham was the father of both believing believing Gentiles and believing Jews. The issue that saved both was not religion, it was faith. He says, and the father of circumcision... To those who were not only are of this circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. He's the father of both the Jews and the Gentiles. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And here's another argument that Paul uses for justification by faith. Abraham was declared righteous... He was made right with God 500 years before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Obviously, righteousness, Abraham's righteousness came apart from the law. 
You see, God never intended for the Jews or anyone else to become right with him by keeping rules and regulations and rituals. The law was intended to expose our sin, not to save us. Salvation has always been by faith. Verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Now here, Paul's cutting to the chase. He's saying that the law and faith are mutually exclusive. I mean, something can't be purchased and yet given freely at the same time. Those are two mutually exclusive options. One nullifies the other. If you purchase it, it wasn't free. If it's free, you can't purchase it. You understand what I'm saying? You can't trust in Christ and also depend on good works. It's one or the other. You see, I've found that God's blessing is like a butterfly. You try through your own efforts to catch it in your hands, and what does it do? It just flutters out of your reach. But if you let it rest on your shoulder and you just rest in faith, it'll come and it'll settle on you. So it is with God's blessing. You try to reach it through your own efforts, and you, it'll constantly elude you. But if you'll just rest and rely on Him to give it freely to you, then it'll come. You'll receive it, and you'll enjoy it. When it comes to our salvation, the Father thought it. The Son bought it. The Spirit taught it. The Bible brought it. Satan fought it, but faith caught it. He says, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. As we discussed in chapter 3, the law's purpose was to expose sin. Law was like an x-ray. An x-ray shows the break, but it does nothing to heal you, does it? The the x-ray doesn't heal, it just exposes. And the same thing with the law. You know, without a standard, without the law, we would have never known that we were in violation. You don't know you're speeding until you see what? The speed limit sign. And that's what the law did for mankind. It showed him his sin. Paul concludes verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. You know, why is this so important? You know, how many people I talk to, they lack confidence in their relationship with God. How many times have you heard statements like, you ask somebody, do you know God loves you? Well, I hope so. Hey, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? Well, I think so. Hey, are you sure your sins are forgiven? Oh, I guess so. But, but you know, God's grace is it guesswork. You can know that you know. There's a certainty that comes to your relationship with God when you depend on His promise, not your performance. Oh, my performance, it's up and down. It's all over the map. It comes and goes. But His promise is faithful. His word is faithful. That's why I'm saved by faith, not by my own goodness. Oh, goodness. (laughs) It's by faith through grace. Ever play shoots and ladders with the kids? Ever play that little game? I can remember playing it with my tots. You'd climb and you'd climb that ladder. You'd get nearer and nearer the prize. But you're always thinking, man, one bad spin and I'm down the chute. And this is how some folks live their Christian life. 
They're confident as long as they're doing good and they're climbing the ladder. But one spin into sin and they feel as if they're down the chute. Hey, grace assures us that even when we spin into trouble, we don't lose our place on the board. Jesus died so that we could get another spin and another and another and hold our place on the board and continue until we reach that prize. Well, verse 16 tells us, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, for as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Whether you were a law-abiding Jew or whether you were a law-breaking Gentile, the blessings of God were received the same way by the promise of God's grace. We all need to follow in Abraham's footsteps and have faith. But the question arises, what is real faith? You remember James chapter 2, verse 19 told us, even the demons believe and tremble. And so to illustrate real faith, Paul points to Abraham. It's interesting, Abraham teaches us our need for faith, but he also teaches us what real faith looks like. In verse 17, we see the preoccupation of Abraham's faith. In verses 18 to 21, we see the application of Abraham's faith. And then in verses 22 to 25, the ramification of his faith. Now notice the preoccupation of Abraham's faith. You want to know what real faith looks like? Here it is, verse 17. For in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Notice this. Abraham believed in a God who is almighty. A God who starts with nothing and bring something out of nothing. Now say you took an art class, and you were told to sculpt a small statue, but no one issued you any molding clay. You'd question the teacher's sanity, wouldn't you? I mean, what's the deal here? Something can't come out of nothing, but it can with God. When God created the universe... God created thin air out of thin air. He created the world, ex nihilo, as the theologians say. It's a Latin word for out of nothing. Even today, when all hope is depleted, when there's no spark left in your marriage, when your kids seem to be a lost cause, when the business is about to go under, our God is still able to. To bring something out of nothing. He specializes in that. And God also specializes in resurrecting the dead. Dead people. Dead dreams. Dead hopes. Dead relationships. You know, long before the resurrection of Jesus, as Abraham and Isaac started up the mountain, Abraham told his servant, we will be back. We'll come back. And notice he didn't just say, I will come back. He said, we will come back. For Isaac was heir to God's promises. I'm sure Abraham was puzzled that God wanted him to sacrifice the fulfillment of all these promises. 
But Abraham rationalized by believing that God is the one who raises people from the dead. Abraham believed that God, if he wanted him to sacrifice Isaac, then God would raise him up from the dead. He said, we will come back. He believed in the resurrection. The resurrection of Isaac. Our God is a God who resurrects. Our God is a God who brings something out of nothing. This is our God. This is the object of our faith. I heard of an old seminary professor who had a surefire way to predict the success of his Bible college students. He said all he had to do was to go back and listen to one of his students' sermons, just one single sermon. That's all he had to listen to. He said, I come to hear if they are big godders or little godders. Some men have a God who can't do miracles, hasn't spoken infallibly, and doesn't intervene for his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. But there are other men who have a great God. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He shows himself strong on behalf of them, them who fear him. These men are big godders, and God will bless their ministry. Well, Abraham was a big godder, and he had a big God. And he had faith. He responded to this big God with faith. You know, we all have faith. Did you know that? We all have faith. You get sick, and you go to a doctor whose name you can't even pronounce. His diplomas you don't verify. He writes a prescription for you you can't read. It's filled by a pharmacist you've never met. He measures out chemical compounds that you don't understand from a container you can't even see. He puts it in a bottle you can't open. And yet you take it. And you get well, don't you? You've got faith. You've got lots of faith. We all have faith. The only question is the object of our faith. Is your faith in God? Or is your faith in yourself, in your own good works? In Mark 11, verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, have faith in God. Now look at the application of Abraham's faith. Verse 18 who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. You know, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the oldest woman to birth a baby was 57 years old. But the Bible tells us that Abraham's wife, Sarah, should really hold that Guinness World Record. For she delivered Isaac at the incredible age of 90. Long past menopause. Her re reproductive chances were hopeless. Yet Sarah and Abraham hoped in God. Her friend said, forget it. Her doctor scoffed, impossible. The only urging this couple had to hold on was the word of God. God had made a promise. And Abraham refused to give up on God's promise. Don't misunderstand. Abraham knew the facts. Faith doesn't deny the facts. It just goes beyond the facts. Faith outreaches, outreaches logic. 
and reason. You know, when God makes a promise contrary to the facts, faith stops listening to logic and keeps listening to God. Perhaps there's a sin in your life you can't shake. Maybe you're up against impossible circumstances. Maybe there's a relationship that's on the rocks. Everyone in your life is telling you to give up, to give in. You need to stop listening to everyone. And you need to start listening to God and to His promise. Hold on to His promise. For in His time, He will fulfill His promise. Verse 19, And not being weak in faith, He did not consider His own body already dead. That's not much for a man's ego, but... Since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Hey, notice Abraham kept acting on God's promise. I mean, even though he was a hundred and Sarah was 90, they kept locking the bedroom door at night. You know what that means? Sarah, 45 years past menopause, took her temperature every morning. Can you imagine? Imagine the clerk at the baby warehouse when they went up there to pick out their furniture. Boy, he was scratching his head. And what a weird baby shower Sarah must have had. All the ladies present, of all the ladies present, only Sarah really believed that she was going to have a baby. Here's the point. True faith, it's never passive. It's active. It's aggressive. True faith, saving faith, is faith to the extent that I'm willing to act on what I believe. This is true faith. If real faith prays for rain, it takes an umbrella in the morning. If real faith prays for a job, it wears its work clothes to the interview. Real faith sees things, not as they are, but as God promises to make them. That's why even if you don't feel like praying, even if you're not in the mood to read your Bible, even if you're afraid to go out and advertise your faith, do it anyway. Trust God to bring fruit from your barrenness. Trust God to resurrect the right feelings. You provide the right actions, God will provide the right feelings. Trust God to produce life from your emptiness. Believe that God will make good on his promises to you, even though right now your playpen might be empty. Remember, when God creates, he takes nothing and he turns it into something beautiful. That's what God does. I've heard it said, faith is the bird that sings to greet the dawn while it's still dark. If it's still dark in your life, don't lose heart. Put your faith in God's promise. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. It's interesting, the giving, between the giving and the receiving of Abraham's promise, 25 years elapsed, and yet he refused to waver. He never wavered in his faith. You know, here's the truth. The longer you have to wait on God's promise, the more opportunity there is for doubts to creep in. 
The longer you have to wait, the tougher faith becomes. This is why the opposing team always likes to try to ice the kicker. You know, just before the field goal attempt, you know, the coach stands right there next to the, to the referee, and just about the time he gets ready to kick, he goes, time out, time out. Why? Because he wants him to think about that kick. He wants to put some time in there so that the kicker will, will think about what he's going to do. The more he can think, the more doubt can creep in, the harder it is to have faith. Well, Abraham refused to get iced. His faith never wavered, even over those 25 years. We're told he was fully convinced that God was faithful. He even gave glory to God in advance. He started giving high fives before he even teed up the ball. He was that confident in God's promise. Verse 22, and therefore... It was accounted to him for righteousness. What made him right with God? Was it his good works? No. It was his faith. Here's the beauty of the gospel in a nutshell. God gives to Abraham and to us the righteousness we lack in exchange for the faith that we show. Now, of course... If you've read the Old Testament, you have a problem here. Because Abraham was not always a man of faith, was he? Hey, the name Hagar is not just a pair of slacks. You remember that slave girl, Hagar, that Sarah sent into the tent to have Abraham's baby for her. Hagar went in a maid and she came out a mom. Don't forget that story. Obviously, faith doesn't have to be perfect in order to be effectual. You know, here's the amazing grace of God. That God forgives even our lapses of faith. You see, God treats me just as if I'd never sinned, even when I do. All the Old Testament saints, they were flawed. They, were, they failed but not once, notice, not once in the New Testament do you see an Old Testament sin getting rehashed. Not once. Why is that? Because what God forgives, He forgets. That's why you don't see the Old Testament sins coming up in the New Testament. What God forgives, He forgets. Even an imperfect faith is still a, can still be an effectual faith because of God's grace. Verse 23 now it, was not, now, it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. For it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who has delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. With Abraham and David, God set a precedent. He works with his people by faith, not works. Chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, understand your status in Christ. If you've had faith, if you've been justified by faith, you're forgiven. You're right with God. But that's not all. For justification has its perks. We also possess 
peace with God, according to Paul. We also possess access to God because of justification by faith. We also possess the joy of God. All these things are ours in Christ. And we're not only standing in grace right now, but we're going to be rejoicing in God's glory for all eternity. In fact, His grace is at work in us right now to perfect us in our trials. Notice verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And then he goes on. But notice this word translated tribulation. It's the Greek word philipsis. You know what it means? It means to crush or to squeeze under pressure. And you know what? Sometimes God puts the squeeze on us. Sometimes he squeezes us. Sometimes God engineers pressure-packed circumstances. Why does he do that? He wants to break us of our own self-righteousness, of our own self-confidence. He wants to put us in a place where our faith will grow, where we'll trust him more. He he wants to shape us through those pressure-packed circumstances and create character and endurance in our lives. Notice this. When you're squeezed, don't try to escape. Don't try to run from the pressure. Why? Knowing that tribulation, what does it produce? Perseverance. If you want want perseverance, you've got to accept the tribulation, the squeezing. For it's tribulation that produces perseverance, and then perseverance produces character, and then character, it produces hope. In other words, if you want endurance and godly character and faith and hope for the future then don't hop out of the pressure cooker because that's what produces it. God is cooking up something good in you. That's why you got to stay in the pressure cooker. That's why you got to let him squeeze you. You can't just run every time the pressure gets applied. Verse 5. For now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now here's one more perk to add to our list, and that's the love of God. This is why you can stay in the pressure cooker. Because you know that God loves you. And whatever He allows into your life, He does so because He loves you and because He knows that that squeezing and that pressure is going to produce perseverance and character and hope. Notice God sets out his love for us in his word. He pours out his love for us through his spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that makes God's love perceptible and tangible and touchable for us. Notice what he says next. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is amazing. Once there was a little boy who was asked to donate blood for his sick sister. This little guy, he didn't really understand the procedure, but he loved his sister and he was willing to do whatever it took to help. And so when they removed the needle from his arm, the little guy looked up at the nurse and said, tell me, 
When am I going to croak? He had agreed to the transfusion thinking that it would cost him his life. He loved his little sister that much. And yet this little boy's brave and selfless act still falls short of the love Jesus had for you. It's one thing to die for someone you admire and someone that you love and someone that loves you. But it is an altogether different matter to lay down your life for an enemy. And yet that's what Paul says Christ has done for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Notice the words here Paul uses. When we were without strength, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies. Hey, before you gave a rip about God, God demonstrated his love for you in that he died in your place. What an extreme love. Before you gave the first inkling that you would ever love God in return or that you would ever serve him or follow him, God went out on a limb, a limb called the cross, to prove just how much he loved you. God didn't wait until you were lovable before he started loving you. Even at your ugliest, most rebellious, most vilest moment, he still took you as he is because of your faith in Jesus Christ. See, while we were still sinners, Jesus died in our place. On April the 6th, 32 AD, God made a scene. He made a scene. He demonstrated his love for us. He made a point for both heaven and earth to see. He proved for all time just how much he loves us. Hey, God set out his love in his word. He pours out his love by his spirit. But understand this, he worked out his love on the cross. On the cross, Jesus proved just how much he loves you and me. How much does he love you? He loves you that much. Verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's an interesting name for God that appears in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 9. It's the name Jehovah Nakah. It means the Lord who strikes. Understand this. God is no pacifist. One day, God is going to judge this wicked world. God is going to strike this world with a sharp sword. God is the Lord who strikes. But understand, he doesn't want to strike you or me. He loves us. And so in your place, in my place, he struck his only son. 39 times his back was slashed, ripped open with a whip. His brow was pricked with prickly thorns. His hands and feet were perforated with stakes. His side was pierced. Even his heart was punctured with a spear. I hope you get the point. Jesus was struck so that we wouldn't have to be. The God who strikes became the God who was stricken. 
Jesus died on a Roman cross to save you from the wrath to come and to reconcile you to God. Tennyson once wrote of Roman religion, he said, the gods are hard to reconcile. In other words, the Roman idols were gods with a grudge. They had to be coerced. They had to be won over to man's side. Their anger and their reluctance had to be overcome. But the cross was not man's effort to appease an angry God. It was God's plan all along to reconcile us. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who went out of the way. It was God who loved you and loved me, even while we were still sinners. Even when we were his enemies, God took the initiative to reach out to us, to have a relationship, to make a way to have a relationship with us. Hey, it's all about love. It's all about God's love. It's all about grace through faith. Verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Oh boy, the lost world we live in approaches life with fingers crossed. They're hoping that luck is on their side. We approach our life with eyes fixed on the cross. There's no luck involved. We're trusting in God's promise. God demonstrated His love. He demonstrated. God made a scene. Why? To prove just how much He loves you. He spoke in an undeniable way through the cross of Jesus Christ. So why are you doubting him today? Why did you come in here moping? Well, I'm not sure God loves me. I don't know if I'm loved by God. Why are you doubting God's love for you when he's already proved it in such an undeniable way? Why are you demanding that God tell you twice when he's already told you how much he loves you? By sacrificing his only son. I mean, what more could he do to better show you his love than what he's already done through the cross of Jesus Christ? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Now, it's amazing how the actions of one can change the destiny of millions. On August the 6th, 1945, United States President Harry Truman authorized the dropping of an atomic bomb on the Japanese island of Hiroshima. Every building within 4.7 miles of the blast was obliterated. 90,000 people died instantly. Eventually, 320,000 people died from the fallout of the bomb. This one event changed the world. It ushered us into the nuclear era. But in our text, we're dealing now with another bomb. We're dealing with another atom bomb. An A-D-A-M bomb. In the Garden of Eden, the first man, Adam, bombed. He blew it. He sinned. He ate the forbidden fruit and he launched a rebellion against God. This atom bomb is responsible for more deaths than Truman's bomb. It brought death to all of humanity. 
Every one of the 100 billion humans who've lived since time began have been impacted by Adam's bomb. Paul was a rabbi, and he's using now rabbinical logic to make his point. He's thinking now distinctively Jewish. You see, Jews held the concept of racial solidarity or federal headship. That one person can act on behalf of a group of people or a nation of people. Remember the challenge of the Philistines? You know, rather than waste the lives of thousands on both sides of the conflict, each side would just send out their champion to fight on behalf of their nation. You know, David fought on behalf of Israel. Goliath fought on behalf of the Philistines. It was this one-for-all kind of mentality. Well, this is Paul's rationale now in Romans chapter 5. One person, a designated representative, can now act by proxy for a whole race of people. Thus, when Adam sinned as father of the human race, as the first man, sin was now passed down to all future generations. All people now are affected by Adam's sin. Here's what happened. The entire human gene pool has been contaminated. You and I are born with tainted blood. It's been poisoned by sin. You've heard the expression, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch? Well, that's true. Adam ate an apple and became a bad apple, and it spoiled the whole bunch. The Bible teaches that every human being is born with a sin nature. We're born rebellious against God, hostile toward God. You know, it's been said, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We inherited that sin from Adam. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, we are by nature children of wrath. Mom, Dad, I hate to break it to you, but that cute, precious, adorable little baby you tuck into bed at night is in reality a diabolical sinner incognito. Ever bit into an apple and discovered a worm inside the apple? And you wonder, how in the world did that worm get inside the apple? Here's how it happened. The egg was laid in the apple blossom. And when the worm hatched, it found itself on the inside of the apple. And it, so it had to eat its way out. That's how sin works. It begins inside us. And it, and it eats its way out into our attitudes and into our actions. You know, an entire football team gets penalized when one man jumps offside, doesn't it? Likewise, because of Adam's bomb, the whole world is born in sin and subject to death. It's been said, in a sense, our death warrant is written into our birth certificate. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now I want you to follow Paul's logic here. For 2,600 years, from Adam to Moses, mankind sinned. But because the law had not been given, because the speed limit had not been posted, God didn't hold mankind accountable for his sin, yet people still died. A death sentence was still being applied and carried out through that whole time. 
all mankind was suffering from somebody's sin, if they weren't being held accountable for their own sin, whose sin were they accountable for? They were accountable for Adam's sin. They had inherited Adam's sin. Even though they weren't guilty of his specific sin, they still received his punishment because they were under, they were under the curse of Adam. Now, I know this sounds unfair to modern-day minds, to American minds specifically. But before we accuse God of unethical treatment here, there's a couple of points you need to consider. You're thinking, well, why am I held accountable for Adam's sin? Here's the first thing I want you to think about. Could you have done any better than Adam? Think about it. I got a $100 bill tonight I brought with me. And I got a $100 bill tonight for anybody who can go through this next week without sinning. A C note for anybody who can just do one week without sinning. No lustful thoughts. No dishonesty, no shading the truth, no selfishness. That's a sin too. Anybody, want, anybody think they can go through this next week and not commit a sin, you got a C note next week, okay? I'll give you a $100 bill. I, I think that's a pretty safe bet on my part because none of us can do that. I, I mean, so, so why, why fault God? I mean, why get upset because you've inherited Adam's sin? You couldn't have done any better on your own. You know, when the United States competes in an international track meet, what do we do? We send our fastest. We send our, our best men, our best women to compete for us. If they lose, we don't then in turn grumble and moan, well, I wasn't given a chance to race. That's not fair. You know, I should have been racing. No, we know ahead of time that we sent our best runners to represent our nation so if there's somebody out there faster than them, well, then they're faster than me. Thus, when they lose, I lose with them. And this is how we should feel about Adam. He was God's special creation. He was an unmarred man. No hang-ups, no hurts. If anyone could have li lived a sinless life, it would have been Adam. He was the best that humanity had to offer, and yet he still bombed. And here's the second reason that we shouldn't buck Paul's logic here. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God in the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So understand this. If sin enters the world through one man's rebellion... That means that now salvation can enter the world through one man's righteousness. You know, if you insist on standing on your own two feet, and you don't think it's fair to be burdened with Adam's sin, then you need to understand it's going to be up to you once you do sin to earn your own righteousness yourself. And do you think you can do that? Not hardly. If you're the one responsible for your own sin, then you're the one who's responsible for your own salvation. You're in trouble. But because sin passed down from one man to all men, therefore righteousness, redemption can be passed down from one man to those who have faith in that one man, Jesus Christ. 
Follow me? Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Through the power of one, Adam, sin reigns in the world, but now through the power of one, Jesus, grace reigns in the hearts of those who trust him. And note the contrast in these verses. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus brings justification. In Adam, we're bound up. In Jesus, grace abounds. In Adam, we receive a sentence of sin and death. In Jesus, we receive sinless status and life. In Adam, there's death. In Christ, there's life. You know, John Calvin once wrote, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. How true. The damage done by Adam's sin is more than made up for by the deliverance that comes through Jesus' obedience. Adam's bomb is not nearly as potent and powerful as the explosion of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 ends. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the original language it reads, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Hey, sin can't cause a breach that grace can't bridge. I love how the Phillips translation renders this last verse. Though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God His grace is wider and deeper still. Mel Trotter was a hopeless alcoholic. When his little girl lay in the casket, Trotter stole the shoes off the corpse to go out and buy some cheap wine. But one day, Mel walked into a rescue mission and he met Jesus Christ, really met Jesus Christ. He was so incredibly transformed that eight years later, he was opening rescue missions all across the country. You see, though sin had abounded in male's life, grace abounded that much more. Grace more than made up for what sin had destroyed. Though sin can have a vice grip on us, grace is still stronger. Grace can wrestle us away. Be thankful that God's ability to forgive and lift and save is mightier than our ability to mess our lives up. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And that's where we'll end it tonight, chapter 5. So read chapter 6 and 7 for next week. Boy, chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible.
Be ready to study it next week.